Chapter Nineteen of Oscar Wilde: His Life and Confessions. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Martin Geeson. Oscar Wilde: His Life and Confessions by Frank Harris. Chapter Nineteen: His Saint Martin's Summer, His Best Work, Part Two. The Ballad of Reading Jail belongs to this summer of 1897. A fortunate conjuncture of circumstances, the prison discipline excluding all sense indulgence, the kindness shown him towards the end of his imprisonment, and of course the delight of freedom, gave him perfect physical health and hope and joy in work and so oscar was enabled for a few brief months to do better than his best he assured me and i believe that the conception of the ballad came to him in prison and was due to the alleviation of his punishment and the permission accorded to him to write and read freely a divine fruit born directly of his pity for others and the pity others felt for him the Ballad of Reading Jail was published in January 1898, over the signature of C-33, Oscar's number in prison. In a few weeks it ran through dozens of editions in England and America, and translations appeared in almost every European language, which is proof not so much of the excellence of the poem as the great place the author held in the curiosity of men. The enthusiasm with which it was accepted in England was astounding. One reviewer compared it with the best of Sophocles. Another said that nothing like it has appeared in our time. No word of criticism was heard. The most cautious called it a simple poignant ballad one of the greatest in the English language. This praise is assuredly not too generous. Yet even this was due to a revulsion of feeling in regard to Oscar himself, rather than to any understanding of the greatness of his work. The best public felt that he had been dreadfully over-punished, and made a scapegoat for worse offenders, and was glad to have the opportunity of repairing its own fault by over-emphasising Oscar's repentance, and over-praising, as it imagined, the first fruits of the converted sinner. The Ballad of Reading Jail is far and away the best poem Oscar Wilde ever wrote. We should try to appreciate it as the future will appreciate it we need not be afraid to trace it to its source and note what is borrowed in it and what is original after all necessary qualifications are made it will stand as a great and splendid achievement shortly before the ballad was written a little book of poetry called a shropshire lad was published by a e hausman now i believe professor of latin at cambridge there are only a hundred odd pages in the booklet, but it is full of high poetry, sincere and passionate feelings set to varied music. 
his friend reginald turner sent oscar a copy of the book and one poem in particular made a deep impression on him it is said that his actual model for the ballad of reading jail was the dream of eugene aram with the ancient mariner thrown in on technical grounds but i believe that wilde owed most of his inspiration to a shropshire lad here are some verses from hausmann's poem and some verses from the ballad on moonlit heath and lonesome bank the sheep beside me graze and yon the gallows used to clank fast by the four cross ways a careless shepherd once would keep the flocks by moonlight there and high amongst the glimmering sheep the dead men stood on air they hang us now in shrewsbury jail the whistles blow forlorn and trains all night groan on the rail to men that die at morn there sleeps in shrewsbury jail to-night or wakes as may betide a better lad if things went right than most that sleep outside and naked to the hangman's noose the morning clocks will ring a neck god made for other use than strangling in a string and sharp the link of life will snap and dead on air will stand heels that held up as straight a chap as treads upon the land so here i'll watch the night and wait to see the morning shine when he will hear the stroke of eight and not the stroke of nine and wish my friend as sound asleep as lads i did not know that shepherded the moonlit sheep a hundred years ago the ballad of reading jail it is sweet to dance to violins when love and life are fair to dance to flutes to dance to lutes is delicate and rare but it is not sweet with nimble feet to dance upon the air and as one sees most fearful things in the crystal of a dream we saw the greasy hempen rope hooked to the blackened beam and heard the prayer the hangman's snare strangled into a scream and all the woe that moved him so that he gave that bitter cry and the wild regrets and the bloody sweats none knew so well as i for he who lives more lives than one more deaths than one must die there are better things in the ballad of reading jail than those inspired by hausmann in the last of the three verses i quote there is a distinction of thought which hausmann hardly reached for he who lives more lives than one more deaths than one must die there are verses too wrung from the heart which have a diviner influence than any product of the intellect the chaplain would not kneel to pray by his dishonoured grave nor mark it with that blessed cross that christ for sinners gave because the man was one of those 
whom Christ came down to save. This too I know, and wise were it if each could know the same, that every prison that men build is built with bricks of shame, and bound with bars, lest Christ should see how men their brothers maim. With bars they blur the gracious moon, and blind the goodly sun, and they do well to hide their hell, for in it things are done that son of God nor son of man ever should look upon. The vilest deeds, like poison weeds, bloom well in prison air. It is only what is good in man that wastes and withers there. Pale anguish keeps the heavy gate, and the warder is despair and he of the swollen purple throat and the stark and staring eyes waits for the holy hands that took the thief to paradise and a broken and a contrite heart the lord will not despise the ballad of reading gaol is beyond all comparison the greatest ballad in english one of the noblest poems in the language this is what prison did for oscar wilde when speaking to him later about this poem i remember assuming that his prison experiences must have helped him to realize the suffering of the condemned soldier and certainly lent passion to his verse but he would not hear of it oh no frank he cried never my experiences in prison were too horrible too painful to be used i simply blotted them out altogether and refused to recall them what about the verse i asked we sewed the sacks we broke the stones we turned the dusty drill we banged the tins and bawled the hymns and sweated on the mill and in the heart of every man terror was lying still characteristic details frank merely the decor of prison life not its reality that no one could paint not even dante who had to turn away his eyes from lesser suffering it may be worth while to notice here as an example of the hatred with which oscar wilde's name and work were regarded that even after he had paid the penalty for his crime the publisher and editor alike in england and america put anything but a high price on his best work they would have bought a play readily enough because they would have known that it would make them money but a ballad from his pen nobody seemed to want the highest price offered in America for the Ballad of Reading Jail was one hundred dollars. Oscar found difficulty in getting even twenty pounds for the English rights from the friend who published it. Yet it has sold since by hundreds of thousands, and is certain always to sell. I must insert here part of another letter from Oscar Wilde which appeared in the Daily Chronicle. 24th march 1898 on the cruelties of the english prison system it was headed 
don't read this if you want to be happy today and was signed by the author of the ballad of reading jail it was manifestly a direct outcome of his prison experiences the letter was simple and affecting but it had little or no influence on the english conscience the home secretary was about to reform the prison system by appointing more inspectors oscar wilde pointed out that inspectors could do nothing but see that the regulations were carried out he took up the position that it was the regulations which needed reform his plea was irrefutable in its moderation and simplicity but it was beyond the comprehension of an english home secretary apparently for all the abuses pointed out by oscar wilde still flourish i can't help giving some extracts from this memorable indictment memorable for its reserve and sanity and complete absence of any bitterness the prisoner who has been allowed the smallest privilege dreads the arrival of the inspectors and on the day of any prison inspection the prison officials are more than usually brutal to the prisoners their object is of course to show the splendid discipline they maintain the necessary reforms are very simple they concern the needs of the body and the needs of the mind of each unfortunate prisoner with regard to the first there are three permanent punishments authorized by law in english prisons one hunger two insomnia three disease the food supplied to prisoners is entirely inadequate most of it is revolting in character all of it is insufficient every prisoner suffers day and night from hunger the result of the food which in most cases consists of weak gruel badly baked bread suet and water is disease in the form of incessant diarrhoea this malady which ultimately with most prisoners becomes a permanent disease is a recognized institution in every prison at wandsworth prison for instance where i was confined for two months till i had to be carried into hospital where i remained for another two months the warders go round twice or three times a day with a stringent medicine which they serve out to the prisoners as a matter of course after about a week of such treatment it is unnecessary to say that the medicine produces no effect at all the wretched prisoner is thus left a prey to the most weakening depressing and humiliating malady that can be conceived and if as often happens he fails from physical weakness to complete his required evolutions at the crank or the mill he is reported for idleness and punished with the greatest severity and brutality nor is this all nothing can be worse than the sanitary arrangements of english prisons 
the foul air of the prison cells increased by a system of ventilation that is utterly ineffective is so sickening and unwholesome that it is not uncommon for warders when they come into the room out of the fresh air and open and inspect each cell to be violently sick with regard to the punishment of insomnia it only exists in chinese and english prisons in china it is inflicted by placing the prisoner in a small bamboo cage in england by means of the plank bed the object of the plank bed is to produce insomnia there is no other object in it and it invariably succeeds and even when one is subsequently allowed a hard mattress as happens in the course of imprisonment one still suffers from insomnia it is a revolting and ignorant punishment with regard to the needs of the mind i beg that you will allow me to say something the present prison system seems almost to have for its aim the wrecking and the destruction of the mental faculties the production of insanity is if not its object certainly its result that is a well ascertained fact its causes are obvious deprived of books of all human intercourse isolated from every humane and humanizing influence condemned to eternal silence robbed of all intercourse with the external world treated like an unintelligent animal brutalized below the level of any of the brute creation the wretched man who is confined in an english prison can hardly escape becoming insane this letter ended by saying that if all the reforms suggested were carried out much would still remain to be done it would still be advisable to humanize the governors of prisons to civilize the warders and to christianize the chaplains this letter was the last effort of the new oscar the oscar who had manfully tried to put the prison under his feet and to learn the significance of sorrow and the lesson of love which christ brought into the world in the beautiful pages about jesus which form the greater part of de profundis also written in those last hopeful months in reading jail oscar shows i think that he might have done much higher work than tolstoi or renan had he set himself resolutely to transmute his new insight into some form of art now and then he divined the very secret of jesus when he says forgive your enemies it is not for the sake of the enemy but for one's own sake that he says so and because love is more beautiful than hate in his own entreaty to the young man sell all that thou hast and give to the poor it is not of the state of the poor that he is thinking but of the soul of the young man the soul that wealth was marring in many of these pages oscar wilde really came close to the divine master 
the image of the man of sorrows he says has fascinated and dominated art as no greek god succeeded in doing and again out of the carpenter's shop at nazareth had come a personality infinitely greater than any made by myth and legend and one strangely enough destined to reveal to the world the mystical meaning of wine and the real beauties of the lilies of the field as none either on kithiron or enna has ever done the song of isaiah he is despised and rejected of men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and we hid as it were our faces from him had seemed to him to prefigure himself and in him the prophecy was fulfilled in this spirit oscar made up his mind that he would write about christ as the precursor of the romantic movement in life and about the artistic life considered in its relation to conduct by bitter suffering he had been brought to see that the moment of repentance is the moment of absolution and self-realization that tears can wash out even blood in the ballad of reading jail he wrote and with tears of blood he cleansed the hand the hand that held the steel for only blood can wipe out blood and only tears can heal and the crimson stain that was of cain became christ's snow-white seal this is the highest height oscar wilde ever reached and alas he only trod the summit for a moment but as he says himself one has perhaps to go to prison to understand that and if so it may be worth while going to prison he was by nature a pagan who for a few months became a christian but to live as a lover of jesus was impossible to this greek born out of due time and he never even dreamed of a reconciling synthesis the arrest of his development makes him a better representative of his time he was an artistic expression of the best english mind a pagan and epicurean his rule of conduct was a selfish individualism am i my brother's keeper this attitude must entail a dreadful nemesis for it condemns one briton in every four to a pauper's grave the result will convince the most hardened that such selfishness is not a creed by which human beings can live in society this summer of eighteen ninety seven was the harvest time in oscar wilde's life and his golden indian summer we owe it de profundis the best pages of prose he ever wrote and the ballad of reading jail his only original poem yet one that will live as long as the language we owe it also that sweet and charming letter to robbie ross which shows him in his habit as he lived 
I must still say a word or two about him in this summer, in order to show the ordinary working of his mind. On his release, and indeed for a year or two later, he called himself Sebastian Melmoth. But one had hardly spoken a half a dozen words to him when he used to beg to be called Oscar Wilde. I remember how he pulled up someone who had just been introduced to him, who persisted in addressing him as Mr. Melmoth. "'Call me Oscar Wilde,' he pleaded. "'Mr. Melmoth is unknown, you see.' "'I thought you preferred it,' said the stranger, excusing himself. "'Oh, dear, no,' interrupted Oscar, smiling. "'I only use the name Melmoth to spare the blushes of the postman, to preserve his modesty.' And he laughed in the old delightful way. It was always significant to me the eager delight with which he shuffled off the new name and took up the old one which he had made famous. An anecdote from his life in the chalet at this time showed that the old witty pagan in Oscar was not yet extinct. An English lady, who had written a great many novels, and happened to be staying in Dieppe, heard of him, and out of kindness, or curiosity, or perhaps a mixture of both motives, wrote and invited him to luncheon. He accepted the invitation. The good lady did not know how to talk to Mr. Sebastian Melmoth, and time went heavily. At length she began to expatiate on the cheapness of things in France. Did Mr. Melmoth know how wonderfully cheap and good the living was? "'Only fancy,' she went on, "'you would not believe what that claret you are drinking costs.' "'Really?' questioned Oscar, with a polite smile. "'Of course I get it wholesale,' she explained, "'but it only costs me sixpence a quart.' "'Oh, my dear lady, I'm afraid you have been cheated.' he exclaimed, ladies should never buy wine. I'm afraid you have been sadly overcharged. The humour may excuse the discourtesy, but Oscar was so uniformly polite to everyone that the incident simply shows how ineffably he had been bored. This summer of 1897 was the decisive period and final turning point in Oscar Wilde's career. So long as the sunny weather lasted, and friends came to visit him from time to time, Oscar was content to live in the Chalet Bourchat. But when the days began to draw in, and the weather became unsettled, the dreariness of a life passed in solitude indoors and without a library became insupportable he was being drawn in two opposite directions i did not know it at the time indeed he only told me about it months later when the matter had been decided irrevocably but this was the moment when his soul was at stake between good and evil the question was whether his wife would come to him again or whether he would yield to the solicitations of Lord Alfred Douglas, and go to live with him. 
Mr. Sherard has told in his book how he brought about the first reconciliation between Oscar and his wife, and how immediately afterwards he received a letter from Lord Alfred Douglas, threatening to shoot him like a dog, if by any words of his Wilde's friendship was lost to him, Douglas. Unluckily, Mrs. Wilde's family were against her going back to her husband. They begged her not to go, talked to her of her duty to her children and herself, and the poor woman hesitated. Finally her advisers decided for her, and Mrs. Wilde wrote this decision to Oscar's solicitors shortly before his release. Oscar's probation was to last at least a year. I do not know enough about Mrs. Wilde and her relations with her family and with her husband, even to discuss her inaction. I dare not criticise her, but she did not go to her husband when, if she had gone boldly, she might have saved him. She knew Lord Alfred Douglas's influence over him, knew that it had already brought him to grief. Gide says, and Oscar himself told me afterwards, that he had come out of prison determined not to go back to Alfred Douglas and the old life. It seems a pity that his wife did not act promptly. She allowed herself to believe that a time of probation was necessary. The delay wounded Oscar, and all the while, as he told me a little later, he was resisting an influence which had dominated his life in the past. I got a letter almost every day, Frank, begging me to come to Posilipo, to the villa which Lord Alfred Douglas had rented. Every day I heard his voice calling, Come, come to sunshine and to me. Come to Naples with its wonderful museum of bronzes, and Pompeii and Paestum, the city of Poseidon. I am waiting to welcome you. Come. Who could resist it, Frank? Love calling, calling with outstretched arms. Who could stay in bleak Berneval, and watch the sheets of rain falling, falling, and the grey mist shrouding the grey sea, and think of Naples and love and sunshine? Who could resist it all? I could not, Frank. I was so lonely and I hated solitude. I resisted as long as I could, but when chill October came, and Bosey came to Rouen for me, I gave up the struggle and yielded. Could Oscar Wilde have won, and made for himself a new and greater life? The majority of men are content to think that such a victory was impossible to him. Everyone knows that he lost, but I at least believe that he might have won. His wife was on the point of yielding, I have since been told, on the point of complete reconciliation, when she heard that he had gone to Naples and returned to his old habit of living. A few days made all the difference. 
it was at the instigation of lord alfred douglas that oscar began the insane action against lord queensbury in which he put to hazard his success his position his good name and liberty and lost them all two years later at the same tempting he committed soul suicide he was not only better in health than he had ever been but he was talking and writing better than ever before and full of literary projects which would certainly have given him money and position and a measure of happiness besides increasing his reputation from the moment he went to naples he was lost and he knew it himself he never afterwards wrote anything as he used to say he could never afterwards face his own soul he could never have won up again the world says and shrugs careless shoulders it is a cheap unworthy conclusion some of us still persist in believing that oscar wilde might easily have won and never again been caught in that dreadful wind which whips the victims of sensual desire about unceasingly driving them hither and thither without rest in that awful place where nulla speranza gli conforta mai no hope ever comforts end of chapter 19 Recording by Martin Giessen in Hazelmere, Surrey.